for a second. Uh, I, it could be, I, I mean, I don't know, it could be a, I don't know if it was, it's a middle school teacher, a high school teacher, I don't know if it's a parent, I don't know if it's someone in, in your, um, where you work. Um, there is, teachers are valuable. Um, and I've had a couple that have been extremely influential. One of the ones that was really influential for me was a lady by the name of Miss Haight. Um, I know it's a crazy name, but that was her name. Um, I think she eventually got married, and so that's no longer her name. That's how I know her. Uh, she was my ninth grade English teacher, and one of the things that I loved about her um, was that she, um, I, was not, I, I was not a great student, I'm just gonna be honest. I was not a great student. Um, I tried to avoid education as, as much as I could. Um, and she acknowledged that, and she met me there and said, well, this is gonna be something that you're gonna have to go through. And so um, she was gracious in the way that she taught. She was intentional, and there was something about her that she didn't, just um, her greatest concern was not just um, communicating uh, information, but that it would truly be received. And so she took time to make sure that it was being received, but with all of her students, but I felt like um, I appreciated that. And it, it kind of changed that she, because of that, because of the way that she took time to get to know me and the way that she cared about how I was learning, uh, it kind of changed the way I saw a teacher could influence your life. Um, and we have teachers in here today, and you guys play a significant role in the lives of, of those that you teach. And so today, we look at Jesus as a teacher. Um, he's a masterful teacher. He's the greatest of teachers. Um, and he has taught on so much ever since, from the beginning, but I think especially as we've gone from um, chapter 8, where Peter and him have this moment, and he begins to teach on these principles of discipleship. One of them is like servant leadership, humility, marriage. Today we get children and wealth and everything and all of these. What he's doing is he's teaching these things. Sometimes it's actually taking a step back and giving a lesson, but oftentimes it's in life circumstances. It's like as he's on the way, as he's going from Galilee to Judea and Jerusalem, he, as things happen, he, he begins to just shed light. And one of the ways that he does that is he takes circumstances and he holds up the truth of the kingdom um, as a reflection of these circumstances. And what it does is it reveals what's broken about the world. So, you know, as he enters into a moment with, about marriage, he reveals what's, what, a, what God's design for marriage is. And what it does is it reveals a broke, how a broken world has, has held marriage up until this point. As he talks about leadership, he reveals the, their broken hearts and their pride, and he kind of reveals what it looks like to be a servant and a true leader in God's kingdom. And so underlying all of this, there's this common thread that there's a broken world and there is a kingdom. And Jesus is constantly proclaiming this kingdom. Kingdom of God is the saving rule of God in our hearts and in this world. It's a restored world and a people that are fully and perfectly in the presence of God. So it's almost like Jesus is just walking along and displaying this, and every opportunity that he gets, he teaches. Sometimes he's sitting, he's standing, but he takes a moment to pause, and he shows this is what the kingdom is. And he does it in all of life, because there's going to be a time where he ultimately is the one that ushers in this kingdom through his sacrifice, and then his, his people carry on this kingdom as he goes with them in his presence. 
Um, and so he's showing them one lesson at a time. This is how we think differently. This is what's different about the kingdom. This is the way that God's always designed it to be. And so today we're going to talk about children and we're going to talk about wealth. But at the heart of this is, again, the kingdom. So we're going to progressively work our way through this passage. Let's start. Mark chapter 10, um, starting in verse 13. It says in... And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked him. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let me pray. Father, to... Um, Lord, I, I pray that you, would, um, that you would teach us. You are a good teacher. Um, Lord, you know us and your presence is with us, Lord. I, I know that you can do something here that's just greater than what I've planned. Um, Lord, that it requires a power that I don't possess. Um, Lord, in it of myself, Lord, it's, um, it requires you and your presence. And so, Lord, would you enter into this moment, Lord, through your word, through your spirit? Would you shepherd us today. Um, would you care for our hearts, Lord? If there needs to be conviction, would you lead us in, into conviction and repentance as you often do? Um, Lord, if there's care and Lord encouragement, would you encourage our hearts? Lord, would you do what you need to do this morning with us? Um, and may, may we just allow that to happen, um, Lord, as, as you care for us. In your name, amen. All right, so the first question that we're going to ask is, what can you learn from a child? What can you learn from a child about the kingdom of God? Um, so Brian did an excellent job last week talking about the beauty of God's design in marriage. If you missed it, we, um, on the app, you can go back and you can look at it. You can watch it. I would encourage you to do that. Um, and he, he, did a, he did a great job. Jesus is at this point where he's traveling towards Jerusalem. He's just finished covering this controversial topic of marriage. And now you see him in what is kind of an in-between moment. He begins, he was speaking to the crowds, but now he is sitting and there's just people around him. There's no miraculous healings. Um, he's not specifically teaching his disciples. In this moment, it's kind of just one of those in-between moments. I know we often get the highlights. Mark gives us the highlights. This is one of the moments where he gets like, you're there just sitting in the house. Um, and, and so this is where we see Jesus, where he's, and there's people that are gathered around him. And like often, often what happens, people find Jesus and they just begin to come to him. And they see that there's specifically, this crowd is a little bit different, that there's parents and there's children. Um, it says that, there's, that the children were coming to him. It's, it's most likely uh, that what they were bringing bought, brought to them. It's most likely mothers um, that are bringing their children so that, that Jesus could bless them. Um, and it was, was an, this was an understood custom, that, that you would bring your children to a teacher, a spiritual leader, someone in that culture, and that they would, they would offer up a blessing to the Lord. And so they saw Jesus as that, at least, at minimum, that kind of a teacher. And so they, they bring their children to Jesus. And this isn't the first time that we've had, like, children have been kind of like a theme up until this point. So they're a theme in my life, so it's kind of like nice that they're a theme also in Scripture. Um, children have been a theme. There's been three specific instances. The first one was in Mark chapter 9, um, 37, where it says, Whoever receives one such a child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me re receives not me, but him who sent me. So it's an opportunity for Jesus to speak of what does it look like for us to care for others? What does it look like for us to serve others? 
And then he talks a little bit later about, man, what, is it, what does it look like for us to, um, for the kingdom to be, um, he says specifically, it says, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around the scribes arguing with them. And immediately, so he talks about this boy that's unclean in chapter 9, and as he continues to work through it, um, he, he gets to verse 42. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin. So he talks about the care that we have for the little ones, spiritually, ch- children, and children themselves. Um, and I think what we see is that it's helpful to, be, to remind ourselves the role of children in this society. So uh, we talked about it last time, but Children have a unique place. In our culture, um, children are praised for their innocence. Um, in this culture, uh, children, children are kind of often ostracized because they don't contribute anything to the society. You, work in a, you have in a society that's like based on labor, work and labor. And if you're not, usually the age is 13, um, that if you, till you're considered the point where you would actually contribute to the society with work and labor, that you were just not valued the way that you are when you're an adult. And so Jesus in this moment is that he's making room. He, what he's doing is he's completely flipping what, the idea of who is welcome into this kingdom. What is the hierarchy of this kingdom? And in the social norms, the social structures that they're in oftentimes are just completely torn down by the way that Jesus approaches people around him. Uh, And so the disciples has this response to the children, um, and their response was harsh. And I think think probably for good reason. Um, So the disciples are kind of like, there's Jesus is around, and if you can imagine the scene, Jesus is here, and the disciples are kind of on the outside, and the people are bringing the children to them. And the disciples get to this point where it almost seems as though Jesus didn't quite initially realize it. But then he sees that the disciples are actually giving, like pushing the parents and the children away. Um, and I, I think a lot of commentators say, well, it's because they didn't value children appropriately. And I think that's part of it. But one of it's because I don't know if you've ever been in a scene with a lot of children and families. But like if it's, I think we often try to think of like, Jesus in the scenes in his life as like the paintings that we see. Like, it was just perfect, you know? Um, in reality, children are children then and children now. Um, children have this way of just not acknowledging any kind of social moment, like acknowledging the pressures, the social pressures that we feel. They say what they think. They do what they want. They're just like children, right? Um, I've seen this in, in the life of my son, Marcus, especially recently. He's at this point where he tries to impress us with is, at any opportunity that he gets. And so um, one of the ways that he does it is like I was, for example, talking to Rob outside, my neighbor, and um, he's, you just hear him. He's just like doing something. And I'm like, what is he doing over there? And eventually he's just like, dad, 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 dad. And I'm just like, I'm like, all right, what? what? So I turn and, and he's sitting on the curb and he's so proud of it, you know? And it's not, it's nothing significant. He's just sitting there and you look at him and you're just like, and you're like, dude, nice, bud. Like, looks good. And then you go back to your conversation and you're just like, you hear him doing more. And he's like, dad, dad, dad. And he's just like, you have him there with like his foot up on the stoop. And he's, you look at him and he's just like, you know, I could do that. You know, it's just like, there's no sense of like, like he just, 
He's discovering the world, right? There's no, like, my dad's, and there's, there's value in, like, training, right? But there's no, like, my dad's talking to somebody. There's no, like, this is probably not appropriate, or this is not as impressive as I think it is. It's just, like, for him, it's just, like, I'm a kid, and look at what I can do, you know? And so I think that you get all these people into this circle, and there's Jesus displays that, like, they, while the disciples are pushing the children away as though they are not the same, like the teachings of Jesus are not meant to be spent on someone that doesn't fully understand them. And so they begin to push him away. And what happens is Jesus becomes, the word that he uses is indignant. Um, the, what they thought was that Jesus is far too important, his teachings are way too significant for them to be spent on a child. And so as we... Um, Man, it's, it's incredible to see Jesus' response. This word indignant is one that, um, this is the only time that it's used to talk about Jesus. And it, Jesus gets frustrated or angry at, other, at a couple other times, but this word in particular is the only time that it means that you're just like, it's an anger that is not just an inward anger, it's an anger that is expressed. Like that Jesus, it's almost this moment that Jesus kind of like stands up and he's like, do not come between me and my children. Um, and then he says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. He says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So here's the irony in all of this. Um, the disciples, the crowd, the leaders have listened to Jesus's teachings for hours throughout their ministry. They've listened to his sermons, they've listened, they have seen his healings, they've seen his power, they've followed him from Galilee to Samaria to Judea. Most often they've responded with accusations, demands, self-promotion, pride, unbelief, and held Jesus at a distance. Um, and as the disciples are ushering out those that they don't consider worthy of Jesus, he stops them and he says, come to me. And I can just say that I read this passage differently now as a father than I think I ever have. Um, one of the best parts as a of being a parent is taking your children into your arms. And it happens for me frequently. And every single time, it does the same thing in my heart. I think, um, so one of the things that my kids like to do is, our front door is really loud. Uh, and so every time that we open it, uh, they can hear me coming, and so I can usually see them like running to hide because they want to surprise me. Um, they do this with Megan as well. And so they'll hide behind a door. You see like a head just like really quick dive behind the couch, you know. Um, and then they jump out at the same time, every single time. Surprise, you know. Um, and, and you just act shocked. You're like, whoa. <laughs> Um, and, and you're excited for them, and they're excited, but the next thing that they do is they run around and they come and give you a hug, and Annabeth wants to talk, and Josephine wants to play monster, and Marcus wants to snuggle, um, but it all begins with this hug, and the reason that that hug is, I think it's just a sacred thing. It's a sacred thing, because for, for that child, um, you, they know that there is nothing that you would not do for them. Your love for them knows no bounds. And for them, like, not like metaphorically, you're not just like something to say, there literally is no safer place than your arms. 
in the entire world. Like, that's just the truth for them. That's the truth for my children. If they're terrified, they want to be here or with Megan. And, and for Jesus, I think I love that in this moment, it does, he calls them to come to them, and there's this instinct that just happens in a child when their parents call them. That they just, you have this crowd that has done nothing but doubt. Like from the whole, all, they've, gotten, they've gotten all the resources in the world. They've gotten teachings, they've gotten healings, they've gotten power. And in a moment, they're pushing these children out. Jesus stands, I don't know if he stands up, but he's indignant. So maybe he stood. And he says, come to me. And the children come through the crowd and they, he takes them into his arms. And he says, essentially, that's what it looks like. Just like that. That is what it looks like to respond to me. All these people have failed and are wrestling to respond. And now in this moment, finally, you have a children, a child, walk through the crowd, take him in his lap, and Jesus says, that is what it looks like to enter the kingdom of, of God. A child. A child just displayed a belief, an acceptance that is yet to be seen. So he takes the child into his arm and he blesses them. And he says that, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So what is he saying? One thing that a child is, there's a lot of things. I, I think a child is, it has innocence. A child has all of these things. There's a childlike faith. But I think most importantly, especially for our passage today, and I think what Jesus is saying is that one of the things that a child does not have is anything to bring. A child is fully dependent on, a, on their parents. Completely. Utterly. For life, you know, and as you grow up, you become less, hopefully, less and less dependent on your parents. But especially as children, there is, you need them for life. And so a child doesn't question that. A child knows that he needs that. And the other thing that a child brings is full and complete trust. Absolute trust. Like, when I take my daughter's hand and we walk a certain way, she doesn't question where I'm going. Um, we walk. And I wanted to mention this because I think it's worth saying that I, I don't think what Jesus is asking for here, I don't think a childlike faith is a question that has, is a faith that has no depth. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, this is what it looks like to accept me. There's going to be trust. There's going to be dependence that a child naturally has that you are going to, that's what it's going to look like for you to actually walk into my arms. So what's it going to look like for you to walk into the kingdom? So it doesn't mean that at no point you're asking questions. To be honest, I looked it up. Children ask at least 100 to 200 questions a day. Um, they ask a lot. And so adults ask around, said around 30 questions a day, according to a study done at the University of Arizona. So um, I was like, that seems like a lot. And then um, this morning as I was getting ready, Josephine asked me three questions in honestly four seconds. It was like, she came in, and I just put on cologne, and she was like, she was like, what is that? Um, I said, it, it's, it's cologne. Mommy likes to smell, so I put it on. She said, okay, why are you in a hurry? I said, well, because, you know, I got I to gotta get there. Why don't we do church every day? <laughs> Those questions have nothing, to, you know, but I'm telling you, they were just like, boom, 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 and who knows what, could, what it came next, you know? It's just like, she's just like, 
Questions, 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 questions. They're curious. They want to know. And I think what you're doing as a child is you're learning to see the world through your parents' eyes. Like you're learning to shape your child. And that's all. It's not that you don't any, ask any questions as a child. It's not that there's not this faith that has depth. I think as you, as you walk in faith with Jesus, you ask all the questions you can think of. And he shapes your view to look like the kingdom and not like the rest of the world. That's what he's asking for. That's what a childlike faith is. So the first thing that we see is what can a child teach us of the kingdom? A child can teach us a lot. He taught them, they taught them a lot, that we are meant to receive and trust and believe in Jesus like a child. Full dependence and full trust. That's what it looks like to follow him. Second thing that we are going to see um, is we cannot hold on to this world and enter the kingdom of God. All right, so we're going to be talking about these two, we have, let's just say two characters, right? So the first character is a child. Um, what is a child and how do you enter the kingdom of God? And these stories are often told separately, but I think we tell them together because I think Mark told them together for a reason. A lot of times we just talk about the wealth of the rich young ruler, but it's meant to be held up against the belief and the faith and the simple gesture of being invited into the arms as a child, right? And so you have this child um, and, the, and the way that a child goes into the kingdom with trust and dependence. And now the story continues. Um, and so we'll read in Mark 10, 17. It says, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and he knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened. By the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. So, this man comes to Jesus, and he kneels before him. And he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Let's just acknowledge this man is physically displaying humility. He seems to be asking a question not in a deceptive or dishonest way to the Pharisees, like, like the Pharisees. Um, he's displaying honor by calling Jesus good. Most importantly, he's asking the right question. It's not a bad question. He's clearly familiar with Jesus and his teachings, and he's seeking wisdom and direction, and so he goes to him. Those are all good things. This is why it's strange the way that Jesus answers for a couple of reasons. The first thing that he says is, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus is a good teacher and doesn't seem to accept this title, which feels kind of weird. And Jesus is already getting at the heart of this man. He says, only God is good. Jesus isn't saying that only God is good, and so I'm not God, therefore I'm not, therefore, therefore I'm not God. What he's saying is, 
that because only God is good, the title, while appropriate, is only appropriate for you if you fully believe and understand that he is God. That's what he's saying. Unfortunately, what we see is that this man's misunderstanding of goodness itself is ultimately what leads him away from Jesus. So the second reason that his, that his response is strange is because you would expect Jesus to say, repent, believe, and enter the kingdom, which is, which is like the message that Jesus has given from the beginning of his ministry. And yet he points to the law. He says, you know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. It feels like it runs counter to everything that Jesus has taught up until this moment. Entry in this kingdom comes as a gift through Jesus alone. It's not because of self-promotion. It's not because of self-worth. It's not because of anything you can bring to the table. Entry into the kingdom comes through Jesus. And so it feels weird for Jesus to begin, to begin with the law. And then the man responds. He kind of responds eagerly. He's like, great, good news, great, because you list those things, and I'm just here to tell you, like, I've done all those things. I've done them honestly since I've been a youth. Like, I grew up in this, and essentially what he's saying is, I am good. I am good. Like, if that is what good is, I've done that. I'm good, and he misjudges a moral life for a good life. There's, he, this man, he literally has everything going for him. He's young, so he has his entire life ahead of him. He's mature in his youth. He has wealth, which in that culture wasn't just the fact that you had money, but the idea that you have wealth was the idea that the Lord's favor was upon you. So he was looked at as somewhat, someone that is honored, um, he's intelligent. He's asking the right questions. He, even the question that he asked displays a knowledge of the prophets and the Old Testament. He's like asking the right questions. He's moral. He lived a life that was considered by others to be honest. He strived to be the best person that he could be. This man would be easily accepted into any group, any culture, any community. He is the model for human achievement. Humble, but gifted. Wealthy, but modest. Successful, but honest. And Jesus, it says that, um, I think that's, that right there is one of the most difficult things for us. It's not that it, Jesus is just addressing his wealth. Jesus is addressing his whole being. He's saying, your whole life, like all of this, this guy's like, it's all good. Like, he's like, I'm moral. I'm, I keep the law. I'm young. This man is everything that we would strive to be um, in this world. It says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Um, I think oftentimes when we tell this story, this man is just portrayed as someone that's just worldly. Just a worldly person. But to be honest, this man was deeply religious. Deeply religious. Deeply successful. And not only that, so when Jesus looks at him, oftentimes he's, this man's vilified in this story. Jesus loved him. So the same heart that Jesus has for the children is the same heart that Jesus has for this man. He loves them. It says that um, the next thing that he says is this invitation. In verse 21, he says, You lack one thing. Go. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor. 
and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Um, I think one of the things that Jesus very quickly exposes is that while he was able to keep, if he was able to keep all of these commandments, Jesus left out the most significant commandment, the very first one, right? Exodus 23 says, you shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus' understanding of that in Mark 12 is that love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That is the greatest of these. Um, That is the first. And what Jesus does in this moment um, is that he takes his finger, thumb, whatever, and puts it right on the issue. Like puts it on the problem. And in just a moment, he just exposes the heart of this man. When Jesus begins to press on the one thing that you refuse to let go of, you've found the thing that is keeping you from him. When Jesus begins to press on the one thing in your life that you say that you cannot live without, whether and for this man it's wealth, and to be honest, I don't, know, I don't think that this story is just about wealth. I think, I think it is difficult for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. I think because I think, I think all the wealth that you have, is there's a lot of opportunity for your heart to be given over to those things. But I think that there's also a lot of other things that we naturally can become consumed with that will actually steal our own heart from the Lord. The way that I like to think about it is that what you are consumed with will consume you, right? So the things that we give our heart over to eventually are the things that will take us completely. And so Jesus acknowledges this. He says, you have done so much. And I just like, I, I love that he says that he loves them. Because he probably sees the, like someone that is striving. He probably sees someone that is working. It's almost like a hamster wheel. Like they're just going, working, working, working. And just thinking their whole life, I want to be decent. I want to be good. I want to be all this. But he says, in the end, what he does is he says, yes. But please, that is not how you get into the kingdom of God. That is not how you enter into the grace that I'm, I'm, I'm inviting you into. That is not what it looks like to be one of my followers. And so it is, it's ironic that in the very end, the words that he says, remember what he, remember what he said to the children? Come to me. And he says the same exact thing to this man. Come to me. He says, you lack, which is... Which is ironic. You're looking at someone that like Mark Zuckerberg. Like you're looking at someone like Elon, like someone that just has abundance of wealth. And you're, to, to look at them and say you lack would almost be offensive. They'd be like, what do you mean I lack? I lack nothing. You know? <laughs> so you're looking at someone that like, they have everything you would ever want. And he starts with you lack. And what he ends with is you lack one thing. He says, go sell all that you have to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. So he says, you lack one thing, go sell to those who lack. (laughs) Like take everything. If you want to gain what you're lacking, take everything and just get rid of it. And come to me and follow me. It's an invitation to let go of the things that we so closely and so tightly hold on to. Um, I don't think this wealth is something that can only be, um, only steal our heart when it's at a certain number or a certain amount. I think wealth can steal our heart and our minds at any point in our lives. That we can spend our whole life um, 
trying to achieve something. In the end, that's worth nothing. It's almost like this man standing here with all of his possessions. Like you get this like picture of this man holding everything that he owns. And Jesus is just like, take my hand. And he just knows that if he were to just move it all, that he would drop it all. And he can't do it. And he just stands there. And he walks away disappointed. He walks away sorrowful because he knows he has great possessions. And as much as he expresses that he wants eternal life, he believes that he can find it on his own. Um, You almost hear the words. You hope that the disciples are hearing these words. And I hope that we hear these words now as as we've read through the book of Mark. In in chapter 8, verse 35 through 36, Jesus, if you remember, at the beginning of all these teachings, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the entire world and forfeit his soul? You just witness it. You watch it. You're just like, man, this man has been consumed with this world, and because of it, he's lost his soul. Um, I think um, for us, I, I, I don't know what this looks like. I don't know what it looks like in your life. I don't know what, I, I know what it looks like in my life. I know that it's something that you fight against. But what Jesus is ultimately doing here is that as a child enters into, this kingdom, into the kingdom of God, he abandons any, any ability for him to actually sustain himself and provide for himself. He walks into the arms of the Father and he says, I need you, and he trusts completely. And the thing that, and the Lord accepts that. And the thing that is rejected is that when you get, to, you stand before the Lord and you have some sense of, I can achieve this on my own. I'm bringing something to the table. The disciples are wrestling with this still. And so I, I think it's important for us to just hold these two and say, what does it look like for us to enter the kingdom of God? And, and at what point, what are you still holding on to? What are we still holding on to? Because you can't hold on to the world and enter the kingdom of God. It just doesn't work that way. Um, but at the very end, if we keep reading, um, so in verse 22, it says, um, uh, and he looked around and he said to the disciples, so this is immediately after, he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. You question, like, where's the resistance now, you know? (laughs) The disciples were so quick to resist the children and push them away from Jesus. And now they're amazed at like, why is this person not actually getting like, why are we not just providing a way for him to get in? Because for, to them, there's a social structure here. And this guy gets in and they do not. And Jesus is flipping, it, flipping it, on his, it on its head. So the disciples are amazed at his words. And Jesus says to him again, children. Notice that he calls them children. Um, he says, children. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What? You know? <laughs> like, what? like, why? I mean, you're like, there has to be something different. He has to be kind of like referring to something that was just like culturally appropriate at the time. No, that's quite literally what he's saying. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is um, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So he's saying this, and if you're like, that's impossible, that's the point, you know? That's the whole point of what he's saying. He says, and they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, "Um, then who can be saved? And he's like, now you're getting it. Like, now you're getting closer to the truth. 
It says, And Jesus looked at them, he said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. He's saying what has to happen in your heart is something that is supernatural. Like what has to take place in your heart is something that only comes from God. There is not just a, like we, when, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus in Matthew, he talks about not just having a physical rebirth, but he talks about having a spiritual rebirth. You need to be reborn. There needs to be something that happens in you that is greater than something that's just of this world. But, and that only happens through Jesus. Like, that's the only place that this happens. This is, there is no, I'm just going to will this to happen. There's no, I'm going to be a better person. There's no, I'm going to get rid of this because I see that that's not good. There's no, I'm just going to live a decent religious life. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to do these things. And, and I'm just going to will it. Jesus is like, you can do that all your life. It's literally impossible. The only way that you're going to enter into the kingdom of God is through me. So come to me. There's only one way. That's it. Come to me and sit in my arms and trust me and leave and let go of the things that are holding you and keeping you from me. He continues on. I love Peter's questions. He says, Peter begins to say to him, see, we have left everything and we followed you. Um, okay, Peter. Uh, and Jesus says, truly I say to you, he gives him some assurance, which is, which is good. Um, he says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospels who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, um, house, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, uh, persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Um, he says, I understand, Peter. I understand that you left your boat. I understand that you left your net, Peter. Yeah, and you're here with me. Um, he says, let me reassure you of this, that there is, this passage ultimately is about the treasures of the kingdom. This man is missing, he is holding on to something that is going to fade, and he's missing the treasure of the kingdom of God. And what he's saying here is that that is something that is going to be available to all of my people. Our people are taken care of. Like, God cares for you. He cares for you. And he, the sacrifices that are made are of such little, are so insignificant in comparison to the treasures that are had. Um, and I, I think this is realized in a lot of different ways, but one of them is Paul. Paul and this rich young ruler have a lot in common. Um, Paul also lived a very religious life. Um, Paul was a successful young man. Um, Paul was someone that you would look up to and someone that was seen as a leader in the community that we, he was in. Eventually, he, his eyes are open to who Jesus is and he, he turns from everything. He abandons everything. And he discovers more and more just how much everything that he abandoned, there was really nothing there to begin with in the treasure that he has found. And so in Philippians 3, 7 through 9, it kind of just kind of comes out of him. He says, whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had at one point, he says, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. You understand that? Like, he's not saying, like, whatever I gain I had, it's just like it's nothing. He's saying, whatever I had, it's a loss. Like, that's, that's nothing. It is absolutely nothing in comparison for the sake of Christ. He says, indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. 
For this sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. That is it. All of these things, in the end, all the things that we hold on to, how quickly they fade and how quickly we grab the next thing. I don't know. It just feels like we're so easily deceived. Like we can look at each other and we can go through something where we just feel like we have gave our heart over to something. It lets us down and we realize it in the moment and then we turn to the next. And it lets us down and we realize it in the moment and we turn to the next. And we sense something in ourselves that our, our, like our heart was made to long for something greater. And it was made for this. It was made for Christ. And Paul realizes that and he celebrates that and he's like, everything that I've lost, that's not even worth mentioning. Um, this is what it looks like to walk with God. It looked like to walk into his kingdom. Um, so I wanted to um, close with prayer. I, I wanted to just give us some time um, as, as we consider what does it look like for us. And I think that we carry things. I think we pick up things along the way. Like we're very, again, like we said, we're very good at this. Uh, where we follow Jesus and maybe there's that initial abandonment of everything and, and I think God in his gracious way and you see it with his disciples is that he continues to call us out as we pick up things we're just not meant to pick up. Um, and so I, I think um, something that's helpful is for us to look at this and say is there anything, is there any part of the world that, if, that we're holding on to like, is there anything in your life that if God were to put his finger on that, if he were to press on that, that it would be the one thing that you would not be willing to let go of for the sake of Christ? Is it wealth? Maybe it's wealth. Is it, is it just safety? Maybe it's safety. Is it being a certain type of person? Is it success? Is it status? Is it, what, is it just possessions? Is it things? What consume, one of the best ways to think of it is, is where, like if you were to be honest about, if you were to do like a graph about where your mind goes throughout the week, <laughs> everywhere, right? Um, but what, what takes the, like the bulk of your mind and your heart? Do you say that you love Christ, but the bulk of your mind and your heart is given over to other things? Because I'm just saying that like, we need to rid ourselves of these things. I think it's, it's something that we see all throughout Scripture, that we're meant to set our minds and our hearts on the things of God, and that is what God uses to do something that we can't do on our own, which is to be completely restored um, with Him. So I'll pray for us, uh, and I just want to give us a moment. Hope's going to be, uh, be up in one second, and then we'll, uh, we'll continue. Um. Lord, I, um, Lord I, I know that we look at a child um, and we see a, a genuine um, dependence and trust um, in you. And Lord, we, um, along the way, uh, we pick up things and we lose that um, so quickly. Lord, we begin to think that we're building something on our own. We begin to think that we can find happiness somewhere else. We begin to, we get to step away. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use this as a moment um, to press on um, our hearts. And, Lord, would you reveal in us anything that is not of you? Lord, reveal in us anything that we are holding on to too tightly, um, 
Lord, reveal to us anything that we would refuse to let go of for you. Lord, and may we do it with joy. Lord, that this, this invitation is the same invitation that you've given from the beginning, that we would repent and that we would believe in the gospel. Lord, that we would turn away from these things, that we would walk towards you. Lord, and that we would discover that you are far greater than anything that we can find in this world. So, Lord, teach us. Be gracious with us and show us, Lord, as we sit with your word, as we speak truth to one another, as your spirit leads us among, our, among your body, Lord, would you shape us and show us what it means to um, cling tightly to you as a child would. Um, Lord, I pray that you would do that within us. In your name, amen. Thank you.